Fortino, no shot. Johnson back to Fortino. Fortino rolling puck down low. Shot scores! It's Pula again! Canada wins gold in overtime! Welcome to Changing on the Fly, a podcast about hockey, politics, and social change. I'm your host, Aaron Lakoff. Like blades on the ice, Changing on the Fly cuts right to the heart of today's most important issues in hockey. We go beyond the stats and pundits to bring you hard-hitting analysis on the politics of the game we love. From taking on racism and sexism in the locker room, to looking at the impacts of climate change on hockey, we amplify voices from the margins and bring them to center ice. Stay with us. All right, hello, 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 and welcome in for episode two of our second season here on Changing on the Fly. My name is Aaron Lakoff. So glad to have you with us. First of all, if you haven't heard episode one for this season, make sure you go back and listen to that. Don't necessarily have to listen to it for episode two to make sense, but we had a great time with Erica Ayala coming on the program, a a women's hockey expert who broke down and assessed the state of women's hockey worldwide. So you can find that on our website at changingonthefly.ca. Well, today we have an amazing show. We're going to be looking at the topic of decolonization and reconciliation in hockey. Our very special guest on the program we're going to hear from in just a little bit is Chief Wilton Littlechild. He has many different accolades under his belt, but amongst them, he was one of the commissioners of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and has been a big proponent of this idea of reconciliation, nation-to-nation talks, and nation-to-nation understanding within sport. He's also a hockey player, so it was very fitting to have him on the show today. So as I'm recording this right now, it is October 21st. It is election night in Canada. Uh, Right now, I'm just kind of pausing at points to see the election results rolling in. The funny thing is that you'll be listening to this in the future, so you already know what happened in the election. (laughs) Anyways, like I said, what we're going to be covering on the show today cuts very close to my heart. Uh, We're going to be talking about decolonization and indigenous issues in hockey. It is a constant theme that we hope to be covering here on Changing on the Fly. And our special guest to walk us through all that is Chief Wilton Littlechild. I had a chance to sit down with Chief Littlechild when he was in Montreal last year to receive an honorary degree from Concordia University. He was very gracious with his time. We met up in his hotel room and had a great chat about a lot of different issues relating to really hard topics, residential schools, abuse, but also looking at how sports can be used to overcome trauma and work towards development, work towards nation-to-nation understandings. I should give a content warning before we get into this episode because there are going to be just a few graphic descriptions of the violence that chief little child encountered while he was in residential school so i just wanted to put it out there because i know it is really difficult for some people one thing i will also say about this interview is that chief little child does talk a bit about the positive sides of the history of residential schools and it's something that you know as a settler as someone who's non-indigenous 
It's not necessarily my place to comment a lot on residential schools, but I will also say that as settlers, it's really not something we should ever endorse coming from other settlers talking about the positive aspects of residential schools, because even to call them schools is really controversial. I mean, these places could also be called houses of torture, of instruments of a genocide. And so I just wanted to kind of put that out there because it is something that comes up in the interview and it's a little bit difficult to deal with. But that being said, I think that many of the points that Chief Littlechild is bringing forward are really, really well thought out, really, really deep and cut to the heart of colonization in this country in ways that a lot of people can't do. And a little bit more about Chief Littlechild himself. So Wilton Littlechild is a Cree chief, a residential school survivor, as we said, and a lawyer who's worked both nationally and internationally, including at the United Nations, to advance indigenous rights and treaties. He's actually the first status Indian who ever uh, got a law degree in the province of Alberta, and that was back in 1976. He also, through his leadership with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, he was a commissioner there, raised awareness of former Canadian policies that decimated the livelihood and culture of Indigenous Canadians. Now, for those of you who don't know what the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was, in a nutshell, it was a series of hearings held over many years throughout Canada, and this was, of course, all in the last decade, uh, where survivors of the residential schools came forward to share their stories, put them on record, and that was heard by the commissioners, including Chief Littlechild. And then those commissioners took all of the hearings and kind of sat with them and formed the calls to action. So 94 calls to action, basically laying the framework and the roadmap for how we move forward with the trauma and with this awful history of genocide that we have in Canada. How does it relate to hockey? We're going to get to that in just a little bit. So do stay tuned here on Changing on the Fly. All right, and again, just before we get into that interview with Chief Wilton Littlechild, three really quick ways you can support Changing on the Fly. Number one is tell a friend. Word of mouth is a great way to spread the love for podcasts and tell all of your friends, tell your family members what you've been listening to, including Changing on the Fly. You can also share our stuff on social media. It's really easy to do. It just takes a split second. You can retweet our stuff post our stuff on social media. We're also on Instagram. That really helps to get the word out. And finally, if you like this podcast, please show us a little bit of love in the financial form. You can support us on Patreon. We have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash changing on the fly. Even as little as $1 a month helps. All your support is very much appreciated. And lastly, we are a proud member of the Upford Network. Find your new favorite podcast at upfordnetwork.com. All right, let's get into our show for today and our interview with Chief Wilton Littlechild. I'm here in Montreal uh, with a very special guest on the program today, uh, Grand Chief Wilton Littlechild, uh, who is joining us from Masquachis, Alberta. 
And uh, you're in town today to receive an honorary degree from Concordia University for your work. And of course, you've done a lot of things throughout your life. Uh, you are one of the three commissioners of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Uh, but first, welcome to Montreal and congratulations for this distinction today. Thank you very much. It is a great honor to be uh, recognized by academia, if I may say that, because it's uh, I started in residential school and I'm ending up with an honorary degree at Concordia University. It's a really um, a big leap of faith, I would say, to, <laughs> to recognize me having uh, um, started what I did in, in terms of the residential school history. Mm. So pe for people who don't know you, maybe can you tell us a little about yourself and, and, and who you are and, and what you've uh, kind of worked on throughout your career? I know you've had like a long career um, practicing law, um, but also, of course, you know, working on the TRC. So tell us a little bit more. Well, actually, my name is Mahikantmohte, uh, which is a Cree name. It means walking wolf, and that's the name I grew up with when I was a little boy. But at six years of age, I was taken, like other children in Canada, by legislation to be put into an institution called an Indian Residential School, where I spent uh, 40 years of the rest of my life, 14, I'm sorry, the rest of my life. Um, and that experience uh, led to a lot of things for me. Um, started very negative in some instances, but turned out very positive in other ways. For example, uh, because I was raised by my grandparents, my grandfather couldn't speak English or read English or write English, so I was very well grounded in Cree with my grandma and also uh, in a Cree traditional ways. And then to go to a school where I didn't understand the language was a, a difficult start. But what I found after a few years was uh, a way out of the abuse that I was experiencing like other children were, uh, whether it was physical or mental or sexual or cultural abuse, spiritual abuse, all forms of abuse. I, um, I re recollect now in, in a... In an interesting way, um, maybe it was revenge, I don't know. But I used to be punished sometimes, uh, being hit across the back several times with a hockey stick. And um, later on, hockey became my life. That's why I say it's kind of uh, interesting how it starts with me being beaten up with a hockey stick as a part of disciplining myself in school. And then to find that I loved hockey, I used to um, run away from the abuse. Uh, Friday nights they would have movies and I would sneak out and I would go and practice and just skate and skate by myself. So hockey became really a big important part of my life uh, because it was because of hockey that I left the reserve. I wasn't happy with uh, what was surrounding me. I don't like to be negative about my community, but as a child I didn't like what was going on around me. So. Um, I ended up going to college and then playing at the University of Alberta. Uh, and all of that started with uh, hockey. But then I broke my leg really bad uh, playing hockey and I ended up coaching hockey. And as a result of coaching hockey, I ended up in uh, law school. So there's a direct link from my childhood experience all the way to uh, professional career as a lawyer. Um, the link being hockey. So I'm a Cree, now I'm a, a, a chief of the Treaty 6 territory uh, in Alberta. And uh, 
I've practiced international law for 40 years now, uh, mainly at the United Nations, both in Geneva and New York, and consequently also ended up going to different countries, 37 different countries as a result of a, a legal career, but also played in uh, uh, 11 World Cup championships in hockey in nine different countries. So it's a very important combination that one supported the other, and by that I mean my my physical side through hockey supported my academic side uh, in law, and they worked together very well for me. And that's been really the root of my success, I would say. Mm. And maybe to, to come back to your experience in the residential school, um, so you, you started playing hockey in the residential school, um, and it, you were at the, the Erminiskin, um, yes, am I Erminiskin yeah. Indian Residential School, it was called. It was actually one of the, at, some, at one point in history, apparently it was the largest Indian residential school in Canada. Mm, wow. Yeah. And can you just tell us a little bit more about what that experience was like, um, you know, picking up a hockey stick and skates and, and, and playing within the school? Well, actually, um, um, hockey was a part of the school program in a sense that there was a uh, an activity after school that was organized by the administration, I suppose. One of the priests was, uh, he liked hockey and he, he coached hockey. So he introduced hockey at a competitive level to the children. And um, I don't know where the skates came from because we couldn't afford skates, but somehow or other they had a, um, a collection of skates and equipment that you used to... Um, uh, check in and get some equipment and put it on and go and play and then give it back and it it was for somebody else to use again or whatever but um, so it was a part of the school way of life uh, for boys sometimes girls as well but mainly boys there was a, a hockey in the winter and baseball in the summer and then uh, interestingly uh, because there was not really a uh, an organized physical education program as we experience today in schools we actually ended up, I uh, was counting one day that we created 33 games by ourselves. You know, we just created these games to play and to be physically active. But um, so hockey was a, a borrowed sport for me. And by that I mean equipment was borrowed and, and the time was borrowed from wherever you could find it to play. Uh, we ended up um, uh, with uh, a blessing in a way as well because. Because if you played hockey, you could sometimes leave the campus, as you would call it, the school grounds, to go and play another hockey team. Uh, for example, in Edmonton or Tasquin, which is the town close to us, or Panoka, which is another town close to us. Um, so you'd be taken out of the school environment, the residential environment, to go and visit another school environment and then play against another team. Um, so sometimes it was uh, in an organized league, um, not many games, but at least you were able to uh, get away from the residential environment and go to some other entity and, and, uh, and play. Uh, so all of us, uh, I don't ever remember anybody having their own equipment. <laughs> it was always you know, was provided, which is good. I mean, we benefited from it, at least I did uh, benefit from it. Um, so we also um, 
ended up playing in the provincial championships, the playdowns, the playoffs. Uh, and interestingly, when I was on a commission, I went across the country and uh, just out of my own curiosity and interest, I started looking at at the schools and where they had hockey, where they played hockey, where there was a facility, of course, always outdoor facility, uh, where the children would have been playing hockey or just out on a water, on a pond or uh, a frozen body of water where they would skate and, and, and play. It, it's, a, it's a common thread across the country that many, many schools had hockey as a sport, but interestingly, also many of the teams that played in residential school were actually quite good teams. They, they won provincial championships. Um, some of them got further than that into uh, national championships. For example, while we're in Quebec here, I remember uh, a couple of uh, my schoolmates being picked up to come and play in a Quebec peewee tournament. It's an international peewee championships. And here they went off to Quebec to go and play. And uh, it, it was, uh, it was amazing to see the the caliber that developed in the schools uh, from the local level to the championship level to an international tournament level. So it was um, it was a big activity for boys. Residential schools are often referred to as Canada's shame, and I would certainly agree with that. And yet in residential schools um, you had these hockey programs at, at several of them and i'm just curious for you what does that say about the fact that you know on the one hand we we call hockey canada's game but on the other hand it was used in this really nefarious way to you know almost um or in a lot of ways to to uh to colonize and and to kind of inculcate indigenous children even like yourself into Canadian society. So I don't know if you, I don't know if the question was clear the way I phrased it, but like, is, th is that is that strange in a way to say, okay, it's Canada's game yet here we have it used in residential schools like that? Well, it's interesting. Uh, let me first of all um, reflect on uh, the, the current research that's coming out now that actually is, there's an argument about the origin of hockey and there are tribes in Eastern Canada who say that they played hockey, uh, you know, many, many, many years ago. In fact, they have uh, discovered a hockey stick that's that predates uh, uh, Canada's national sport. Uh, so there's that debate. But the second debate is: Was hockey actually utilized to assimilate First Nations children? There are some who argue that because the purpose of the school the residential school and the policy of the residential school was first of all to kill the Indian in the child. That's a, a stated policy. Uh, but also uh, to Christianize uh, children, Indians, or to um, assimilate them into white society to make them uh, like everyone else uh, is the expression that they they use. So was sport like hockey a utility or a um, a medium to promote assimilation. Some argue yes, uh, because it was a part of a a way out in a sense, uh, but for a different reason. Mine was to to run away from the abuse, and and to use a sport to promote my own um, uh, dreams. Others 
uh, it may be said that uh, they had to play uh, to get away from the. They had to join the mainstream society and hide their own identity, hide the fact that they were Indian, Cree or Métis or whatever, so that they could play on a team. Uh, if you were good, you were obviously noticed, but uh, if you got to the elite level uh, for a long, long time, many players hid the fact that they were First Nations or, or uh, Indigenous peoples. <clears throat> so there is that argument. But is there another argument that says it was used as revenge? It was used as a revenge in a way to uh, to get back at at uh, that notion that you're you're being assimilated. To say no, I'm I'm using this to promote myself. I'm using it to promote the fact of my identity, uh, and that I can succeed, uh, notwithstanding the fact that I'm an indigenous person. So there's an interesting. Uh, focal points or elements of debate in that. Was actually hockey an indigenous game? That's one. And was it used to uh, assimilate children into mainstream society so they could become non-Indian by playing uh, a white man's game, if I could put it that way, and I don't mean to be <clears throat> excuse me, offensive to anyone. Or was it actually a way out and into success? Could you use... Uh, medium like uh, athletics through hockey especially to uh, to get away from the uh, circumstances you were put into as a child and and yet succeed mm -hmm. so there's a very interesting um, discussion that's held i think around that whole notion yeah definitely interesting <clears throat> i think it shows the the complexities of, of sport as well um Moving on, I wanted to um, talk about some of the findings of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission with you. So mm -hmm. as I mentioned before, you're one of the, the three commissioners of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And, and from the recommendations of that commission, there, there's five of those recommendations, five of 94, I think it is, uh, that touch specifically on sports. And I think those are really fascinating recommendations to look at how we can better sports uh, in this country moving forward. Um, and so I wanted to just um, read a couple of them and maybe get you to, to reflect on them, maybe even in terms of the progress that, that we've made in the years since uh, those recommendations came out. So recommendation 87 says, we call upon all levels of government in collaboration with Aboriginal peoples, sports hall of fames, and other relevant organizations to provide public education that tells the national story of Aboriginal athletes and history. And so, you know, there's so many um, stories of Indigenous athletes that, that go untold. Can you talk a little bit more about the importance of this uh, recommendation and this kind of education and, and what that kind of education might look like? Well, first of all, let me excuse me. Let me go back to um, the work as a commissioner. Um, many, many, many times, we heard about the the sad and awful, awful stories, um, and it created almost a negative um, reflection on the history. And it was true. It was it was negative in many, many cases. But I. I, first of all, didn't want to do the job. Uh, I didn't know why I wasn't really keen on doing it, but I found out later why. Um, so I was uh, kind of curious in my own mind, was there anything good in this dark history, this sad, 
unknown chapter of Canadian history, as it's been told. Was there anything positive? And one of the things that was positive for both boys and girls was sports. Um, for girls, it was basketball or volleyball or uh, running. Uh, for boys, it was hockey or baseball. But hockey, in particular, across the country, became the the bright light, as I say in my in my own reflections. It was the bright light in this dark history. Uh, so we have, just for an example, somebody collected rookie cards. You know, every professional sport has a rookie card where a person who joins a league or makes a team, they have a rookie card um, published by either a bubblegum company or some company. And I heard one being sold for over $50,000 last week, a rookie card. but. Um, he collected rookie cards of Aboriginal players in the National Hockey League. And it's interesting that uh, he's collected 84 cards, which says that there were at least 84 First Nations or, you know, Métis, uh, Inuit, professional hockey players. And many, many, many of them came from residential schools. There's that... There's that uh, <clears throat> path from residential school to a professional sport that's actually uh, coming out now. It's being revealed by this, for example, this collection of rookie cards. But uh, to go to your question, it was important that we uplift the positive side of this residential school history um, because it helps our young people. It helps promote wellness among our young people and by that I mean uh, not to be ashamed of who they are, because self-identity was taken away from you in residential school. Your name was taken, you were given a number, your hair was cut to make you look different, your clothes were taken. Um, so identity and self-esteem is really important growing up. And if you don't have a role model to look to as a young boy or girl, um, Maybe you don't get anywhere, but if you have a, someone to follow or look up to in terms of a role model, it motivates you to, to do certain things and take on certain activities. So it was an effort to uplift uh, through sport uh, some of our people who became role models to motivate the children today uh, because many of them are lost. They don't know where they belong, so they make wrong choices in life. Uh, but maybe we thought... Does sport have a power to change things? And I really firmly believe, of course, yes, it does. Sport, like hockey, has the power to heal, power to advance reconciliation. So I thought it was important that we utilize sport to showcase some of the successful people, to so showcase some of the contributions indigenous hockey players have made or football or baseball players have made to mainstream sport, but like you say, nobody knows about them. So this is in a way to uh, call on the uh, sport uh, society or sporting industry or, or sport organizations to help us promote and advance reconciliation by telling these stories, by acknowledging they had, uh, there, there were good players um, in a way to, uh, for example, in, in uh, in Alberta, in Red Deer, the, the Alberta Sports Hall of Fame, um, for quite a while, 
has a display on residential school sports. And they display, um, for example, the hockey players when they were children and where they ended up in terms of uh, professional teams they played on uh, or the success they had through through hockey. So sports uh, halls of fame like the one in uh, Red Deer with Alberta had a, a very important role to teach others about this history that's not known in Canada, to teach about uh, athletes who were in these institutions. And then uh, recently also the um, Canadian Hockey Hall of Fame, or the Hockey Hall of Fame, I should say, in Toronto, uh, decided to um, acknowledge one of the teams, the, one of the residential school teams who went on to win uh, World Cup championships in uh, in Europe. And so did the, uh, my team. We had a team that played in 11 uh, World Cup tournaments, the same uh, team that we had in residential school and ended up winning five gold medals. So there's still that, the fact that there's there's success that's unknown. And sport has that possibility to tell that story by acknowledging like the Hockey Hall of Fame did with Saging, the hockey team, uh, and, and, and uplift it so that now everybody that, or at least people that go to the Hockey Hall of Fame in Toronto will become aware suddenly about this. Hey, there was a residential school history here, and look at there's these teams that actually were very successful, um, not only on the ice but off the ice, that we can read about or know about. So the Halls of Fame have that uh, ability, and my belief is that it, it's not only about educating the Canadian public; it's about teaching our own children that you can succeed, and um, that there's also some success that happened from the schools. So speaking about um, that kind of uplifting that you just brought up, I think that ties in really nicely to the other recommendation I wanted to talk about. So this is uh, recommendation 88 which says, we call upon all levels of government to take action to ensure long-term Aboriginal athlete development and growth and continued support for the North American Indigenous Games, including funding to host the games and for provincial and territorial team preparation and travel. And so this is a, a pretty new invention, the, the North American Indigenous <clears throat> Games. You're, you're, of course, one of the founders of that. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that recommendation and what's come from that? Well, actually, um, I, I introduced a resolution in Sweden in August of 1977 that we should have World Indigenous Games. And of course, it was unanimously accepted and everybody wanted to do it right away. But the fact of the matter was that uh, it's expensive. It costs money to hold a, a high-level competition like that or high-level celebration of life, I call it. Um, so it lay dormant for a while. And then in 1990, we thought, three of us thought, let's start at a regional level. <clears throat> yes, we have this dream about the World Games, but let's start regionally. Let's have North American Indigenous Games. Because I tried it with Alberta. And um, in Alberta, we had the Alberta Indigenous Games, and we ended up playing 13 different events, 13 sports and cultural events uh, from, for athletes from all across Alberta. It was an amazing, amazing success. So the next step was actually to try it uh, at the North American level. 
and in 1990 we held the first games in uh, in Edmonton uh, with teams from every province and territory and 33 states came together and uh, and had friendly competitions uh, in terms of uh, the sports but also we uplifted our traditional games and our, our traditional uh, uh, cultural uh, events uh, so it worked it worked and then we thought well let's try this periodically and 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 because of the cost we could do it periodically like every two or three years so Saskatchewan said we'll do the next one and we had them in Prince Albert and and then of course because it was North America uh, it was the US turn so we went to Minnesota for example where there were over 10,000 participants in sport and culture it was amazing but what is more amazing, I think, is that in order for you, for example, to, to, to grab a spot or make a spot, a team um, in Alberta, we had 10,000 children playing and competing at the community level all across the province just to make those 500 or 800 seats. So it was promoting physical activity at the local level, uh, a lot of activity at the local level. So. Um, it grew. It grew from there. It promoted physical activity and culture in our own communities. And then we had this focal point where children could aspire to go to the North American Indigenous Games. And then eventually, it took us 38 years, but eventually the World Games, which we had in Brazil uh, in 2015. And we just finished the second one here in uh, Canada and Alberta in our territory, Treaty 6 territory. So. Um, why did we do this? Well, at the time when we were looking at what can we do with our suicides, what can we do with our high level of addictions, what can we do with our poor uh, health uh, lifestyles, and we were challenged because um, it was getting very drastic. And for example, my own community was called the National Suicide Capital of Canada at one point. Awful, awful designation to bear, right? So we needed to do something for the children and the youth. And of course, my only way, <laughs> my only way was sport, because that's all I knew and what it did for me, what sport did for me. I wanted other children to experience that. So creating the North American Games um, uh, was one aspect, uh, sort of a high-level competition. Many of the children, uh, that's their Olympics. That's the highest they're going to make, but for them that's great, right? So, and for us that's great as well because it motivates uh, good health, healthy lifestyle choices. So it was a, it was a sort of a multifaceted approach to promoting that, but it costs money, and we thought, why don't we call on governments to help us? So we said, help us, provincial, territorial governments, help these teams get to the. North American Indigenous Games by funding their travel and let's help the host community with some funding resources so they can establish a, a good host, a good, good games because uh, it involves everybody. It, it involves our elders. It's interesting that children that come to the games and they have an access to to be able to talk to elders, which they may not have at home or elsewhere. They love it because they come in there and they participate in the games and then they have a chance to talk and visit with elders. They learn about other cultures, other dances or songs. So it's a very good environment to, to celebrate 
And to have that experience, a positive experience, may plant a seed on those young athletes that there's something better than suicide. There's something better than uh, pursuing an addiction in a, in a different way or joining a gang or something. So that ability to host the games is crucial for those good reasons, but it takes money. So we called on government to help us uh, do that. And it's starting to happen in a very good way. One thing that I think about when I think about sports and development in a lot of indigenous communities is I, I think of the example of Attawapiskat um, in, in Northern Ontario. And of course, you know, they've dealt with several crises over the last few years, a housing crisis, a youth suicide crisis. And I remember a few Canadians um, who were, you know, naysayers or perhaps just racists who were looking at that situation. Uh, you know, drew attention to the fact that there's a housing crisis, but the the chief uh, uh, was it Chief Spence um, had spent something like ninety thousand dollars on a Zamboni, and I just remember thinking, like, doesn't every community in this country deserve a Zamboni? Like, don't we want to see a hockey program in, especially in in a really challenging place like Attawapiskat? And I'm wondering, you know, to to get your reflection on that, like. When you see these communities um, who, who are just going through so much pain, um, what could a hockey program bring to, to a community like that? Well, there are, there are several examples um, across the country, that, and I'm going to pick two just to, just to illustrate. First of all, at, at the Wapiskat, you'll remember also um, uh, when there was this rash of suicides, the youth, the children themselves were being interviewed. And I remember the youth saying, you know, why do you asking being asked, why do you guys do this? Why do you kill yourself at such a you know rate? And what's wrong here? What's and I remember the young people said, you know what would really help us? It's just to have a place where you can get together, a recreation place, a recreation hall, or something in our community where we could get together. And that was a very strong, strong message, at least to me, that we can do something about this. We can provide that that safe haven of a place where children can come together and play or youth can get together and, and discuss things or a recreational a place. And there was a man who became one of our honorary witnesses in the uh, um, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, who was a former professional hockey player with Boston Bruins. And he used to go up north off season and enjoy you know, fishing and hunting and so on. And <clears throat> became introduced to the community where a similar situation existed. So he started a hockey program for the northern community. And every summer he would go back and he would organize a hockey school for the kids. Well, many times funded it himself. And the level of participation and, and competition and success that grew out of that one man's program um, for the community was phenomenal. 
so yes, there's stark reality of high level of suicide, and, and yes, there's criticism for people who try to do things uh, to, to help situations like that. But I'm more in favor of <clears throat> those success stories because those children are, are now thriving because there was individuals like uh, the chief who took a risk uh, to help the community and another volunteer uh, hockey player to, to come and promote the sport in a community. Those kids are now thriving and succeeding. So there's that naysayer side of things. Yes, I, 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 I realize that, but we need to shed more light on the success as a result of the risk those, those people were taking in order to help the young people. And that's really all, all uh, what's important in that, I think. And so it's just been a few years now since these recommendations have been released. <clears throat> You've already mentioned a few positive things that have uh, come out of them. So, you know, different sports halls of fame or the Hockey Hall of Fame kind of devoting exhibits to, to shining some, some light and, and educating about uh, these difficult histories that, that we're talking about. Uh, and I'm wondering for you, what would be some of the next steps that you would like to see uh, maybe looking specifically at the hockey world, but it could even be broader. What would be some of the next steps you would like to see in terms of moving forward with reconciliation and sport? I think actually opening up space or creating more space for good events to happen. Uh, you know, for example, in, in, in Edmonton, um, I'll, I'll mention four things real quickly, because in Edmonton, the baseball team, the Capitals, honored us in a, in a baseball game. The Edmonton Eskimos also honored us in a, in a football game. And of course, the Edmonton Oilers has done a tremendous job uh, advancing reconciliation through hockey in, in the events that they've, they've, hold, they've held in terms of lifting up uh, indigenous uh, players. So because of that, I see that, that, that sport has this power. And I want to call on others to consider that power and expand it expand it, make it more open, make it offer more opportunities. For example, wouldn't it be nice that if every NHL city across Canada dedicated a game for indigenous players or, or athletes in their region? Uh, because you'd find, for example, in Montreal, not only Carey Price, but there's other important stories around this area um, where, where people played in Ontario, Toronto and Ottawa. Let's expand that space and bring in and honor uh, uh, players there in Winnipeg and Calgary and Vancouver. You'll find players on every single team that have been outstanding, mm -hmm. and, but we're not acknowledging that. And let's do more of it. Let's make more space. And because when when um, the uh, Edmonton Oilers did that, the second that the puck dropped with their own uh, social media, for example. 390,000 people became educated about the residential school history just by that one instance of five minutes of a hockey game to, to educate broadly the, the core of fans that support the Edmonton Oilers through social media. And of course, we don't know how many others were spread from that. So uh, yeah, let's create more space. Let's create more opportunities to do that because it's good news. It's, it's positive news, it's positive feeling, and it promotes success. Uh, and that's the side we don't hear about. And by the way, let me correct you on one thing. Oh, um, these uh, 
there was a study done on when reports are done. Um, what words are used? Words like um, observation, conclusion, uh, suggestion, recommendation, and others. The easiest word to ignore is a recommendation. Right, and they're calls to action. That's right. Yes. So okay. that's why we call these yeah. calls to action. Mm -hmm. We have enough studies. We have enough recommendations. There's thousands and thousands of recommendations on how to improve relations between First Nations and, and Canada or the world indeed. Um, but what was missing was the action. So now there's a lot of acts of reconciliation going across Canada that's so encouraging for me because I think that was right. The time was right to call for action. So we have 94 calls to action in different sectors of society, including the sports community. So um, that's why we're... Uh, that's why it's important to acknowledge that uh, uh, in order to have reconciliation, we now know the truth of what happened in residential schools. But in order to advance reconciliation, we need collective action. In some places, it's individual action. Uh, I remember a man, for example, said to me, I've been working on reconciliation for 10 years now. In fact, he was one of my former residential school hockey teammates. I've been working on reconciliation for 10 years, Willie. And I said, wow, way to go. And he said, no, no. Today was the first time I realized reconciliation begins with me. And that's a phenomenal statement for an individual who went through the same journey as I did of abuse and to promote an advanced reconciliation. But it begins with each of us. It begins with me. And that's what the, the message should be to all of your listeners, for example to ask themselves, what can I do to advance reconciliation? Because it starts with me. And yes, sports is one area, but there's a lot of other areas where we could advance reconciliation, but it begins with all of us individually. Mm -hmm. And I thank you for making that correction. It's so important because I had taken note that it was calls to action, yet I think you know we fall back on that language That's of, right. Um, right. government reports and recommendations so that that's yeah. very important that it that it is action lastly um, I was wondering is is hockey still a part of your life do you do you play are you still a fan do you have teams you support well yes I do I, I unfortunately I broke my hip uh, last year playing hockey I still, <laughs> I still was trying to compete at the masters level but I I'm also an ambassador for the Winter Olympics so I was in Vancouver I was in uh, Pyeongchang with uh, supporting the hockey. And by the way, we had three First Nations uh, or Indigenous players on both the men's and the hockey team this year, which is really amazing. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, it's a, it's a part of my life. I'm a board member for the Edmonton Oilers Community Foundation, where we uh, raise funds for, for good causes to, to help uh, our community in, in that way. So it's still a big part of my life, yeah. Mm. And who do you cheer for? Edmonton Oilers, Oilers <laughs> still, yeah. but you know what, in, in the early 50s, oil was struck in, in our territory and uh, we had a team uh, called the Hobima Oilers. So we had that name before the Edmonton Oilers. In fact, in the early 50s, the team won uh, provincial championships. It was a, in, in, an Indian team as it was called then, but um, they won Alberta championships with the name Oilers. So it's interesting coming full circle with me being now a member of that board for the for the Oilers and then uh, yeah 
uh, still promoting it. Yeah. Yeah. That's nice. Well, I'm glad at least you mentioned Carey Price because he's one of my favorite players. And mm-hmm. as a Montreal Canadiens fan, we can agree to disagree. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, again, we've been speaking with uh, Grand Chief uh, Wilton Littlechild uh, here in Montreal about sports and reconciliation. Thank you so much for uh, being so generous with your time today and speaking with us. Thank you very much. And uh, keep up the good work. You have a power here through the media to tell these stories. And uh, you never know who you impact. You never know who's listening to your story. And uh, uh, anyway, just keep up the good work. Welcome back here on Changing on the Fly. Really do hope you enjoyed that interview with Chief Wilton Littlechild. I would highly encourage everyone listening to this to read the calls to action of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, especially calls number 87 to 91 that touch directly on sports. It's a really important read, and it's a really quick read too, to be honest. If you're an athlete, coach, an educator, if you work in the media, really anyone out there, and you can find a link to the calls to action in the show notes for this episode. So to take us out with some news, you might have already heard this by now, but the St. Louis Blues became the third NHL team since Trump took office to visit the White House after winning the Stanley Cup. The Penguins and the Capitals went before them. And I would argue that all of these teams, but the Blues most recently, have helped contribute to making hockey the most tone-deaf sport in the world. So look, as a professional athlete, it's really not that hard to look around you and see that so many other of your champion colleagues are refusing to normalize the Trump administration and all of the white supremacy that he represents by making these visits. NFL teams, NBA teams, and the U.S. women's soccer team, they've all refused. And the NHL has basically become the only league that'll touch Trump and the Trump White House with a 10-foot pole. The NHL's is much shorter. But worse than that is the fact that Trump actually uses these visits as political fodder. He's just advancing his own agenda by having this cast of characters of a Stanley Cup winning team standing behind him in the White House Rose Garden. When the Penguins visited, he joked about NAFTA. And during the Blues visit, he used it as a platform to once again knock what he calls the fake news. Have a listen to this. On January 6th, Fresh off another really bad loss. It was close, but it was bad. But they gathered at a bar in Philadelphia where they heard the 1982 hit Gloria. That's where you were. That's why we were playing that song for those of you that don't know what's happened here. Gloria. The next day, you shut out the Flyers, who were hot, and Gloria became your new wind song. It was a wind song. That's why we played it. So now everybody gets it. Otherwise, the fake news would be criticizing me. They'd say, what kind of a song? You're playing this song. What, what is that? Look at that guy. Look so there you go. Trump is using hockey players, willingly playing along, to push his messed up narrative that the media are out to get him, and anyone who isn't the far-right Fox News are pushing lies and conspiracy theories. This is more of his dog whistling to his alt-right racist base. The St. Louis Blues stood behind him, laughing with their goofy, toothless smiles and gutless grins. Shame on them. So here's a challenge to all of you listening to this, regardless of what hockey team you cheer for. Let's try to make a visible campaign after this season ends to make sure these kinds of visits never, ever happen again. 
who's hot this year? I don't know. The Bruins, the Leafs, the Sharks, the Habs. Okay, yeah, right. Whatever. But regardless of which team wins, mobilize your fan base, get on social media, get in the streets where the other fans are, and say no visit to the Trump White House. And with that, we are out of here. I want to thank all of our supporters on Patreon for their generous support. Aiden, Nick A, Jeff, Jeremy, Daniel, Nick T, Shona, Andrew, Ellen, Amber, Bruce, Sam, and Grill. Also, I want to say huge thank you to Courtney for her very generous donation for this episode. And if you want your name on that beautiful credit roll, you can sign up to support this podcast at patreon.com slash changing on the fly. If you want to make a one-time donation, you can send us any amount you want via PayPal to changing on the fly podcast at gmail.com. That is also our email where you can get us with questions, comments, just to say hi, anything you want. And with that, we are out of here. My name is Aaron. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Julian McKenzie, co-host of the Scrum Podcast, a sports show I'm doing with my podcasting partner in crime, Tristan Damore, on the UpFord Network. Every week, we analyze something different from the Canadian sports media landscape. Lack of diversity, getting a job in the field, coverage of different sports, and answering some of the harder questions. Through a combination of back-and-forth discussion and high-profile guest interviews, we're aiming to figure out exactly what's up in the world of sports. Find us wherever podcasts are sold. iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, SoundCloud, Message in a Bottle, Morse Code, Telegram, Singing Telegram, Target, Walgreens, Bird's Nest, Dad's Shed, uh, and a crowded convention center bathroom. Hi, I'm Candace Pye, and I'm the host of Gal Chat, a weekly podcast where we give you our feminist takes on everything from sex and dating to politics and pop culture. It's a show that updates you on controversial headlines, dives into the latest movies and TV, and discusses things like Tinder troubles and Me Too struggles. I put out a new show every Tuesday with special guests, available on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Subscribe, rate, review, and follow us on social media at Galchatpod.